Welcome back. This is the third episode of Talking Tech. In our past two episodes, we've talked about really big companies, how they've got so big, ethics behind that, and how that affects us as consumers. But we, we haven't asked who are the people and what were their struggles in getting to be that big. Today, I set out to answer that. With me is my uncle, Steve Russell, who is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's going to share his story on how he started his first company. Enjoy. I was wondering if you could tell me about where you were leading up to that point, like where you were in college leading up to there. So um, when I left school uh, or I finished school, I um, started working for a, a really small, really small company um, that did uh, accounting software. And I think I was there maybe three months and um, and the company folded. Uh, they actually sold it off and they just sold off the assets of the company, no people or anything like that. And I think when I went through that, the um, sort of the realization I had was I really don't know that much about much. Um, and so I decided to uh, go to work for some larger tech companies where I, I felt I could just learn a lot more about, you know, <laughs> the world at large or the tech world at large. So I ended up at the time, uh, you know, the early 1980s, this is when IBM was kind of the largest tech company. And I think I really thought seriously about working at DEC, um, which was a mini computer manufacturer at the time, but I ended up going to work for IBM and worked in a, uh, um, uh, uh, area where they, they sold um, computer systems into retail stores. Uh, and so we were based in Chicago, which at the time was really the hub of retail in the US. You had Sears Roebuck, Montgomery Wards, two of the largest grocery store chains in the country. And it was all headquartered there. So all that development and all that was done there. Um, I then moved with IBM out to California um, into the Bay Area and worked in banking systems there. Um, and I did that uh, for an additional, uh, I guess, four years. Uh, and so I was with IBM for about eight years, but I was also in the Bay Area and you're just exposed to so much with tech startups. Um, and at the yeah. time, you know, you had the whole personal computer boom going so Apple was on fire. All the companies around it were on fire. When did they and release it, their, their Mac? The, the first Mac came out uh, in 82. Um, yeah, yeah, so they decided to right. do things. Yeah, I, got, I literally got out there right before that. I think uh, IBM came out with their PC just before that. And I worked for IBM when, when that device came out, which was um, you know, a, a huge deal then. Uh, so it, it, it was a... Um, uh, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Apple was out before IBM. Uh, the Apple II came out, I think, 79, uh, and then uh, and then IBM released end of 81, um, which did, there was a very famous ad by um, Apple, right, the 1984 thing, which was really them trying to stake their claim and positioning against IBM. That was like uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. May I ask what degree you had coming out of college? Yeah, so I uh, actually studied business in college um, and I uh, had a lot of econ and, and math and a lot of quantitative kinds of things. So I knew I wanted to get into tech um, and uh, the computer science that I had, um, you, you know, was kind of so-so. But uh, the one nice thing about going to a large company like IBM, 
they teach you everything. I mean, they, the interview process was really light, but you spent one day just going through all these tests and they just test and test and test. And based on how you do on those tests really determined, you know, who they hired and how they hired them and, and, you know, what jobs they put you into. So you knew a little bit about computer programming. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I had programming, you know, some, uh, you know, back then programming was very, very, very different than it is now. Um, but yeah, I had, I definitely had some background there. Yeah. What was that? Was that writing on basic? No, it was actually before basic. So the languages Ooh. that were most, uh, prevalent back then, um, in the business world, the languages were COBOL. Um, but a lot of the development that, that, that went on back then was in, uh, really low level languages. So the first language that I learned at IBM was what's known as assembly language, which is literally programming on the chip. And it's the most base kind of development that you can do. But back in those days, you know, that you really had to understand how to manage memory and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And that was a, a big part of, of, of what they taught and how to manage memory specific within IBM computers. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, as languages started to grow or the, the diversity of languages started to grow, then we, you know, had other languages coming in. Um, probably the biggest one that hit was the C language, which was developed by Bell Labs and primarily on the Unix operating system, but it spread pretty quickly elsewhere. Um, and that, that became a bit more of a core development environment than, uh, than Fortran or basic, uh, you know, or those kinds of languages that, that just sort of came and went. There's a long list of Pascal and, and all these other things that were for languages back then. So continue with where I cut you off. You moved to California working for IBM. Sorry, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think I made the decision in 88 that yeah, I wanted to go be a part of a startup. So um, there was a company called uh, Impel Engineering that was a, uh, a consulting company that was focused on providing consulting services to nuclear power plants. Um, and they had built a lot of software that automated uh, how you would do nuclear power plant maintenance and those kinds of things. And they were, they were pretty bright guys. And so, you know, we all hooked up and um, at the time the nuclear power industry was sort of on the down slide in the U S. And so these consulting companies, they just weren't needed as much anymore. So they, you know, everybody just kind of, okay, it's, it's time to go. Um, and so we started uh, at the time, um, a company that was, we had a name for it that was because we're, our real focus was on digitizing and managing the routing of engineering documents. So it was very, very similar to what um, the problem space that those guys knew at Impel. And I think um, we weren't at it very long and we realized, you know, there's probably a much bigger market for this kind of technology. So we built, um, and you know, this, this goes back a ways, but we were the first vendor in the space um, software company that developed uh, imaging software that didn't require any specialized hardware. And we did it all on just off the shelf standard PCs. And that was unheard of. Everybody you either had to buy for like $2,000 a piece uh, image compression and decompression hardware, or you bought completely specialized hardware from vendors. And we just used off the shelf PCs and local area networks and network file servers and things like that. Um, and we were able to obviously go in at much, much lower prices than those guys could. And our software was just a lot more flexible. So a lot of what I did when I first, uh, when we first got going was I spent time uh, developing the actual 
applications that the end customer would use. And we became very successful with um, large financial institutions, um, large power companies, uh, you know, any place that you had just a massive amount of process and physical paper that needed to get managed, um, uh, digitized and managed in some way, then, you know, they, they came to us. So we started that company in 88 and, you know, we kind of were like a rocket ship. We uh, had, you know, the, probably the, the marquee names uh, for venture capital um, behind us, uh, you know, Sequoia, which is now, I mean, they were the first investor in Apple. Uh, in fact, the, the guy who was the lead there um, on our deal was, was the same on, on Apple. And so wow. it really accelerated things because, you know, we had um, three or four high profile venture capital backers uh, in that when you're in, uh, at the time in Silicon Valley, the networking you get out of that and the ability to recruit developers and salespeople and all those kinds of things when you're able to plug into that kind of network just accelerates everything. And I think that's a big part of being in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, at least at the time, it's a little more dispersed now, was that flywheel effect you would get by being a part of that is... Um, you know, you walk down Sand Hill Road, there's an investor on every corner. Um, and it, it just is, it just makes things go so much faster. And the interconnectedness of just, you know, the universities like Stanford and Cal Berkeley, um, all of the different tech companies that were out there, you know, going all the way back to Intel and Fairchild Semiconductor, all the way up to Google and everybody you see now all kind of come out of that ecosystem. So when IBM, when you're working for IBM, did you purposely move to California so you could be in that environment? No, actually, um, that uh, IBM, when I first went there, uh, or after I think I'd been there a couple of years, um, they started to reshuffle a lot and they were going to start to close down um, certain offices and plants and things like that and labs. And uh, they had a policy that just said, you know, we'll we'll get you, um, you know, another opportunity within um, uh, uh, the company. And I had some friends that I knew uh, that I went through IBM training with, and they were out here in California and they went to their boss and said, Hey, you know, we know this guy in Chicago would be really great if we get him on our team out here. Um, and so I flew out with these guys once and they said, Hey, you know, pack up your Volkswagen and come on out. So I did. So, so it's just by chance that you went to California at the same time that there's this technological revolution happening in the same area. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah. In fact, I had not been to the Bay Area until till I came out to take this job. So when you were guys, when you were developing the software, you left the company that was consulting for nuclear plants with like five guys and you started Stars. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were they were at that company, um, and then they uh, they were all going to leave anyways, and so everybody kind of got together and, uh, and and started that one, and started Newstar. So did everyone like invest their own money into it? No, <laughs> there were investors right up front, um, which Before was you one had the of product. The, uh, what's that? Before you yeah. had the product done? Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's. I mean, companies start in different ways, right? But um, I, I, I think that 
a couple of the people that came from that consulting company um, knew some people who made a lot of money at that consulting company. And so they put the money in to get us going. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, starting a company back then was a lot more expensive than it is now. Um, because you have to have all these computers, you have to have servers, you have to have frameworks that were really, really expensive. And now those things are, oh, they're free for the most part. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can get developer um, uh, trials and things like that, that you, you can run on for a year um, uh, before you really need to, you know, step up and, and, and spend some money. Um, you know, I think for most startups, they're, they're, they're really their, their biggest expense is rent. Um, you know, and that's assuming that they need to be in the same room to work together. And oftentimes they're working in somebody's apartment for, for the longest time or a coffee shop or something like that. So it was very different back then. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lot harder to, or was a lot harder to bootstrap businesses than, than it is now. I mean, all you really need is like a, a computer and like a Wix subscription. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know, get a laptop and you're, you're good to go. Have, did you, have you heard about the company WeWorks? Sure. Know them well. In fact, uh, a really good developer that, uh, that worked for me for, uh, um, uh, uh, I think he worked for us for a couple of years, just a really, really good, uh, really good programmer. We hired him right out of college. Um, he went to work for WeWorks uh, before they had their big dust up um, and they offered him twice the money we were able to pay him. <laughs> And we said, go do it. I mean, you know, that's like, and then I think uh, two months into it, uh, you know, WeWorks kind of um, had some, some challenges. Yeah. But they helped people bootstrapping companies get really inexpensive workplaces that they did not have to maintain. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you know, you get full service, right? So all the kinds of things you need, like wireless or copiers or whatever, not that you need a ton of copiers, but, you know, just coffee, I mean, just everything you would normally have to put into an office, you just go in and it would be in a place like WeWork. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's others that are out there that, that, that can do that kind of a thing. I mean, I think right now, um, if I were to start, you know, a new software company, I would probably not go into any space at all and get the idea laid out, you know, get some basic bits laid down, you know, code that part of it up. So there's enough that's demonstrable and then just start uh, approaching tech incubators and trying to get into a, an incubator class. Cause I think that probably does more to accelerate it. And I think has replaced a lot of the benefit that you got out of the Silicon Valley venture capital crowd, you know, 15 years ago, you now are getting out of the, the, the incubator crowd in terms of being able to get going. You tend to get a little bit of angel investment there. So, uh, you know, you can scale a little bit, um, but more importantly, I mean, you're dealing with, um, uh, you know, people who have just seen this a, a bunch of times and know how to work it. And you have that same network and same infrastructure. But you also have the added benefit that you're doing it with a lot of other people who are in the same boat that you are. So you're sitting in a class kind of a deal where there's 10 other companies and they're all trying, they're all at that same stage of growth and they're all dealing with the same things. Like, okay, there's 50 features we want to put into our software. What are the 10 that we can afford to do that are going to give us the most benefit? How do you work through that kind of a problem? And so being able to do it in that kind of environment is probably, you know, one of the better accelerators you can, you can, you can avail yourself of these days. And that kind of thing just wasn't available, you know, 25 years ago. I'm interning with a tech incubator right now. Mm, and good. I mean, like, like, like what you said, they just go through, they look at thousands of companies mm -hmm. and 
that they've seen all the same problems hundreds of times and they they offer anger, they offer investments they network then like like what you said like they show you other people who are dealing with the same issues yeah yeah no i think it's a it's a it's it's a great way to do it without giving up a lot of ownership of your company and that's always been kind of the downside of the pure venture capital thing is you know you, you, particularly if you end up taking a lot of money when you're a small company, then you're going to give up a lot of the equity in your company and you lose control or you lose ownership or things like that. And the incubators, while they, you know, you're going to give up something, it's, you know, nothing on the scale of what they get before. And, and you can get much further along before you have to start going out and looking at real investment. Yeah. And I think you were saying earlier that you really had to be, Silicon Valley was the place to start a tech company a while ago, and now you can do it from anywhere. The it, tech stars Des Moines, the one I'm working with, they're having people from India, and like there's no difference from people that are like living in Des Moines, two blocks away from them. It's all the it levels out the playing field. Yeah, it, it, it it's it, which I think is great. I, I mean, you know, I I mean, I still live here in in the Bay Area and. Um, it's still entirely a tech dominated economy. In fact, more so now than it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But um, it, I, I think that, that a lot of the structural problems that people had building tech companies outside of here um, or outside of the hubs like Boston, Austin and um, uh, Silicon Valley uh, where you, you know, it was hard to be able to get the face-to-face -face meetings with investors that you needed. It was hard to have the population of engineers that you needed. Um, and I think that the, the investor piece of it is less of an issue now than it used to be. I mean, the investors are a lot more flexible. The, and as I said, I mean, I think that the amount of capital that it takes to get a company off the ground now is a lot less than what it used to be, you know, in relative dollars. So, you know, people can make um, smaller investments and, you know, still have a, a pretty good investment company going. And I think that model has now spawned just a whole bunch of investment um, uh, venture firms that aren't based in California. You know, they're based in the Midwest, they're based in the East Coast, they're based in the South, you know, and, and I think when you put on top of it that a lot of people you know, maybe they don't want to live in California and pay a fortune for a, you know, a pup tent in somebody's backyard to live in and, and you know, things like that. Um, I mean, I still think, uh, you know, if, if you go the route I did, which was, hey, I want to get to, you know, a company that really knows what they're doing so I can just learn a lot before I go on my own. You know, you, you still are, you know, Google, Facebook. I mean, there's that's all out here, right? And, uh, um, but, you know, New York's got a, 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 a ton of options. So I don't think it's not nearly as centralized um, now as it was before, which which I, I think is a great thing. I also think that what it takes to develop software and you know how many people have engineering degrees and things like that is is vastly different now than what it used to be. I mean, you know, the the affinity with Stanford or something like that, uh, as you know, that you, you know, you just don't need that caliber to be able to get a great idea and put it on an iPhone and get it out in the market. Yeah. So back to you starting your company, you have now you've developed the document scanner and you're just now picking up traction with companies reaching out to you guys. Yeah, we um, we picked up traction pretty quickly. Uh, you know, we were really big in Texas because that's sort of the home of oil and gas. 
and we were really big in New York, Manhattan in particular, because that's where most of the banking was. So I make like our first really big customer uh, was Sherson Lehman Hutton and then JP Morgan. Um, uh, and then Manny Haney, which is the manufacturer's handle, which is a big bank that was acquired by Citibank. And, you know, we, so we, we ended up getting niches in- Like they were uh, reaching out to you? Uh, well, once we got into one, everybody talks, right? So then, you know, we, we obviously had salespeople and, and they were out banging on doors saying, hey, look what we did over here. And, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, I think and the same. first one. Um, you know, I'm not sure how that came through. I think the first one was somebody knew somebody, kind of a friend thing, and um, they were really interested in what we were doing because it was really, really different than, uh, you know, what was on the market. And I think they had a pretty progressive um, IT director or something that said, you know, wow, being able to do this on PCs and you know, things like that would be just awesome. And I think we were really inexpensive compared to what their alternatives were, which is go buy all the specialized hardware and everything else. So I think they just said, even if it doesn't work, we're not gonna lose that much. I mean, it does work, it's, it's great. Um, you know, and we got in there and got it all working. And um, I, I literally would spend probably two to three weeks out of every month in New York, just getting these systems up and running and developing the, you know, the end solutions and those kinds of things. So how big did you guys end up getting before you got acquired? So um, we sold when we were at about $80 million in revenue, um, you know, which is uh, pretty good for a software company back then. Um, and, you know, I think a lot, even today, um, you know, they, that, that's you're you're kind of a medium-sized company and you know we and we did all that in the course of you know six seven years what, what was the timeline it started in 88 uh to 98 and a lot of people lost a lot of money uh, following a few years after that the yeah, the, you had the dot com and the telecom crash, which hurt me because I was, you know, we got bought uh, by, by a Lucent and uh, we were uh, in the middle of that when the Lucent stock just got massacred. But yeah, <laughs> so you have the telecoms and you have the dot com boom that just a lot of money changed hands in a very short period of time. So you've been, did you stay with a Lucent once you got acquired? So there was a couple of steps in between there. Um, so the acquisition of Ustar was done um, by a company called Mosaics, which was a, they do, um, uh, you know, call center kind of technology and they wanted our routing and things like that to be able to go in there. Um, and then at that time uh, I was running engineering for the, when, when they did the acquisition, I came in as the head of engineering for the um, for Mosaic. So I sat over all their products, and it, I then started to really understand a lot more about call centers. Um, and at the time, call centers were really focused on how do I route incoming phone calls, um, you know, so I get it to somebody quickly. And so there's a lot of technology around all that that these guys were focused on, and they wanted to buy our routing technology, which is why they bought ViewStar to be able to um, use it for uh, routing within a call center. Um, and this is when email was really taken off. And these call centers couldn't figure out like, how do we answer all these customer emails and manage the phones and all that stuff. 
And so we left and started another company that was focused on just solving email routing. So we built um, a product that would, you know, you'd send a email to say, you know, customer support at uh, whatever. Uh, and then we would read through the email electronically and parse it and try and figure out, you know, are they asking for something? Are they complaining about something? Do they want to buy something? Uh, and then we would route it to someone to be able to actually satisfy whatever the request was. And that was bought by Lucent. So in addition to reading like what inbox the person sending it to, like the support, the info or the help or whatever, you, you also read their email so you could more accurately send it to the right person. Yeah, yeah, there was a, um, a technology that um, uh, has, has been around for a while. It was actually developed at Bell Labs that allowed you to pretty efficiently go in and parse text. And then we would have rules that you could assign to it and we could determine what the intent of the email was. And based upon that, we would make routing decisions and set priorities to it and you know those kinds of things and, uh, and, and, and get it to folks. That's really impressive. What did you say that company was? Emation. Emation. And we never, we never, we were in talks with a couple of companies about installing it to get our first customers. And at the time, Lucent was buying the other company that that we had worked with, um, which was uh, uh, Mosaics. And so they wanted to buy us as well. And so they bought both companies pretty close together. And a lot of that was myself as well as some of the other developers were sort of the key group of the Mosaics uh, product teams. And, and so they, 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 they really came after us to buy us. Dang. So then you've been now bought again. Mm -hmm. And then where do you go from that? So, um, so I became the chief technology officer for Lucent um, and uh, which is a big company, a much bigger, bigger company than, uh, you know, I had a lot of experience in. So, but I contractually, you know, needed to stay there to see through the acquisition and those kinds of things, um, which I did. Uh, and then when the market fell out in the bottom of the telecommunications space, um, there was a, a guy that contacted me, um, from Texas, uh, who had started a company um, and wanted to buy some other technology to put into that company. And Lucent owned some technology he wanted to buy. And so he approached me about trying to figure out how to do it. And at the time I said, well, if you're gonna do that, I mean, I'll come over and run the company and I can bring a team of engineers with me and we can you know, manage the technology and get it all built out and get it going and make sure you know, the customers that are using it are happy and paying and you know, all those kinds of things. So uh, I went over and uh, we had a subsidiary of his bigger company um, that was really just taking the technology that he purchased and modernizing it and fixing it up and taking it to market and, and those kinds of things. And we did that for about four or five years and then uh, we were bought out by a private equity company. Um, bought out a few times. That's, that, this, that's, that's the nature of tech. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I mean, Facebook isn't Facebook anymore. It's really Instagram, right? It's just, <laughs> you just buy. Uh, so at any rate, then, um, you know, I did that, um, for about five years and then that company again was bought, um, <laughs> by a company up in, in Canada and I worked there for about a year and then 
and then I just uh, was done and quit and took the summer off uh, and uh, went biking in Eastern Europe with um, <laughs> my family and I uh, was doing a little consulting or whatever. Uh, and then um, shortly after that, the guy that I worked with in Texas before had called me and he was trying to build a new cloud product um, for government. And um, he asked me to come in and take a look at it because they were having a really tough time getting it done, getting it to market. And I spent just a couple, three days, myself and one other guy, just looking at at the code and what they were doing and everything else. And, you know, we gave him some feedback uh, and then left. And then six months later, he said, we still can't get it to market. Can you come join us full time? And he's a really nice guy and I've known and worked with him for a long time. So I figured, yeah, I'd go ahead. And I, at the time I thought, all right, I'm probably gonna take me a year to sort of get this thing going, but um, it's where I am now. And I've been there for the last four years, so. Nice. So you've started two companies and you've worked for a handful of bigger companies. Mm -hmm. How did the, like the work balance change between working at like a very big and bureaucratic company versus like the fast paced startup environment? So a very uh, hard transition. It is. Um, I think when I first went to IBM, uh, you know, I was young and I knew I didn't know a lot about a lot. So they just had more resources to take advantage of. And it, I mean, it just in the structure I mean, it was just really, really good for somebody just starting out. Um, so you learn just better methodologies. You just learn structure. You learn business. I mean, you just learn a lot of things. Um, and then when I went to the startup world, then it's like you said. I mean, it's it's phrenic. I mean, it's every day you go in and figure out, oh, man, how, how, how are we going to get this done? Um, I, I was talking with somebody yesterday. We were talking about COVID and lungs and I once worked for three straight days with no sleep, building something that we were going to show to a customer because our competition was IBM and they wanted $250,000 just to demonstrate what it is the customer would, would buy because it had to be built. And I, I said, I, I can do that in three days. And I did. Um, and, but it's that kind of environment, right? And, uh, and, and you do it because, you know, if you do it, you know, it's not like you're going to get a pat on the back and somebody's going to say, oh, hey, good job. You know, you're going to get a lot more than that, right? I mean, you're building value in the company. You know, if you get them, then that's going to be the reference that's going to get 20 other customers, which make your stock worth a lot more. And it's just a whole different set of motivations. And, uh, you know, it, it, but it is all consuming. I mean, I work seven days a week, 12 hours a day at, at least. Um, and it, it just is, that's just the life. How do you sustain that amount of work? Like, obviously you can't just work like 100% nonstop like you did for those three days. But I mean, over 80 hours a week consistently, how do you work, how do you work at that level for a long period of time? You get used to it. Um, but I, I mean, you know, it's not good on your health. I can tell you that. It's, it's not something you want to do for, you know, years on end. But I think at the time it, you know, I was young. Um, you know, I didn't have any responsibilities other than work. And it was fun. I mean, you know, you're building something. It's that's that's a lot of fun to do. So, uh, you know, it's it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but also, th I mean, I would probably start working at seven in the morning, you know, get in. Um, and I'd probably work till nine at night. You know, that's I mean, you know, that so, you know, I'm home and and and, you know, you still get a decent night's sleep. 
it's just if you want to hang out with friends and go to bars and things like that, you know, you, you kind of have to pick when you do that um, because you can't do it every night. Um, and, you know, it, it does, it, you know, it, it, it kind of defines your life a little bit. So what happens is, yeah, you know, you finish work at nine o'clock or 930 at night when everybody else that you're working with is. So you all just go to the corner bar and kind of wind down or whatever and, and you get up the next morning and do it again. So, uh, you know, you do kind of get in a bit of a rhythm and, and you get used to it. Um, I think it's harder, you know, I still probably, you know, work, you know, nine hours, 10 hours a day when I'm, you know, just because just kind of wired that way after, you know, having spent, uh, you know, 10, 15 years working in kind of that, that environment that, uh, that you're just used to it. I think we were talking about limitations of, uh, like everything being virtual. And that's something I think about a lot is that working super long hours when just you home alone compared to having like the group like oh everyone else around me is working 12 hours a day is I can do yeah. it yeah no I I think you're right I mean we talk about it a lot um because uh you know we um when we went virtual you know the pros and cons of it and that's a lot of it I mean it is hard to sustain um you know we would you know like we have an office in san francisco or did we you know we, we ended up closing it because uh, you know we didn't really need it down there anymore but you know we had there was 12 of us you know all um engineering types in there and so you know we have a ping pong tournament in the middle of the day or something like that or you know you'd always kind of break it up but that also gives you a little bit of juice to go another hour or two um you know, and lots of times, uh, you know, there's a thing called meetups. There's a meetup, uh, you know, web deal in, in the Bay Area. Every night, there's some technical meetup going on, you know, whether it's oh, the latest, you know, React or whatever. And so you go do that for an hour or something. And then, you know, you get kind of jazzed. So you come back and, and work for another hour or so. Plus, I think now, um, you know, you can, you can do some work at home because, you, you know, everything's in the cloud. You just do it from your laptop and, and whatnot. So, you know, I'd, I'd go home and I might work for another hour or something after that, just to kind of bang something out before the day starts. Um, but it is harder. I think that, like you said, you know, you don't, it just kind of gets a bit of a grunt. I also think it, I'm with video conferencing, a lot of that stuff, it still is hard to collaborate in any real creative way, as opposed to sitting in a room where you can just draw pictures on a wall and think stuff through, um, you know, much less doing, um, uh, you, you, know, you know, just really intensive, everybody looking at the same screen, working on the same thing at the same time. It's, it's really hard to do that remotely. And only purposeful conversations are happening. Like, for example, like a, like a founder, like a CEO of a company might not be running into like people that they wouldn't only make like a point of meeting with like Pixar's building is like the office space of Pixar is designed for like people that like normally wouldn't yeah. see each other, run into each other so they can collaborate. But that seems like it wouldn't happen because with Zoom or like Google Hangouts, you schedule meetings for a purpose. Right, right. Interacting. Yep, no, that's very true. I, you know, I mean, I think office space, like you said, it was designed more for interaction and collaboration just because as you separate people out, it's really hard to keep that going. And I think that's been a real challenge with what, what we're doing now. And I think, you know, like Twitter and, you know, a couple of the other local companies here, you know, they, the they first, companies. yeah, well, they said, you know, like, okay, uh, we're probably going to go all remote, you know, even after COVID and all that. And, 
you know, that's, that's probably not going to happen, um, you know, to the level people think, because, um, you know, I know I still, it's like, okay, I mean, we just need to get in a room and talk this through and work it out. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think a lot of people are saying, okay, um, you know, we did this for a while. We, we had, uh, you know, three days in the office, uh, and then two days, if you want to come in, you, you could, if, if you didn't, then, you know, you just work from home or something like that. And that, and that was fine. That, that worked out pretty well. And, you know, there were people in the office every day, but, you know, not everybody felt they had to be, but I, we thought it was a really good balance between making sure there was that we knew on these three days of the week, everybody would be there and we would be able to have, you know, a pretty high level of collaboration, um, uh, you know, as opposed to trying to schedule it via a Zoom session or something like that. Steve, I was wondering if we could transition to talking about what you think the future of the technology industry is going to be looking like. Sure. What new innovations are going to be coming. What you think those will be? Well, you know, I mean, I think that that the uh, the big. Um, I, I mean, I think if if it's anything, it's it's like such a broad. Um, I don't know, spectrum, but if you think of it in kind of like in two layers, and this is kind of simplifying a little bit, but one layer is more kind of the applications. You know, what are people going to do now with technology, or what are people going to do in the future with technology that they're not doing with now? In other words, that, you know, there's some clumsy way that they're doing it manually or, or whatever. Like and problems? Yeah, so you, you think of it more like um, you know, a consumer or a business that says, uh, you know, hey, I, I, I want to do something um, by using technology that, that just doesn't leverage technology all that well today. I mean, if you think about how Amazon came about, it literally people just said, hey, I, I can shop online versus in a store. And, you know, it's not that Amazon, you know, had some you know, new invention or something like that. They had a business idea about doing an application, right, which was let's make a retail store be online. Um, and then the other part of it is really what's going to enable a lot of that, which is the lower level technology stuff, you know, the pure tech. And, you know, I think the pure tech stuff probably moves um, at a different pace in some ways in a faster pace. Uh, you know, so if you look at the big trends down there, probably the biggest one is uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, right? I mean, that, that probably has more impact on the kinds of applications that can get done and what people can do with those applications um, by being able to leverage technology that just really wasn't that accessible, even though, I mean, art artificial intelligence has been around since, what, the 60s, but it hasn't been developed in such a way that it is all that accessible or easily um, embedded or used within applications. So I think the AI piece of it is just going to continue to keep just providing more and more and more. I mean, we use it now, um, you know, for things that I think five years ago, you know, nobody ever would have thought about trying to automate. Um, you know, we look at government documents all day long, you know, we're building AI technology that will read all that for us find out the information in there that, you know, needs to be passed on to the agency, extracts it, you know, and, and does it with, with no human interaction. And we wouldn't have been able to do that without, you know, some level of machine learning um, and being able to, you know, put it in in a way that doesn't, you know, cost us millions of dollars. I mean, actually, we, we built it out on 
uh, you know, off the shelf uh, cloud platform um, uh, that, you know, we obviously had to develop our stuff for it, but our stuff was really the application, the underlying technology was, was provided by that. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, machine learning is, is probably the, the most influential thing that's going on right now. I don't think there's anything that, 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 that really gets beyond that. I mean, you might look at things like 5G networks and the- Computer vision? The, the, no, it's uh, like um, the speed at which you can deliver data across networks today um, and wireless networks specifically. Um, so, you know, the phone networks, um, Maybe. being able to do that at a, with, with a level of, uh, or with, with data at rates that just aren't, aren't even approached with what's there today opens up a massive set of applications, right? The interactivity you can have just goes way up. Um, so you're starting to see these little things out there like, oh, you know, you can try these glasses on over your mobile phone and all that other kind of stuff. I mean, it's little things like that that are going to just become more and more elaborate. So, uh, you know, it allows airplane pilots to, you know, do their simulation training, you know, remotely without, you know, having to go into some high-end, um, uh, you know, purpose-built simulator simply because all the data that's needed to be able to provide that thing can go across a network that's just massively faster than what people have today. With machine learning, because to get a machine to learn, you have to feed it a bunch of data, right? Mm -hmm. Do you fear that it will promote bigger companies over startups that cannot get access to like so much data to feed a machine? Yeah, no. I mean, I think that uh, there's so many other fears that the big tech companies are probably going to, you know, take advantage of to squash pretty much anyone. Um, I think, you know, that the, in certain areas, the data streams that are collected, like by a Facebook or a Google, where, you know, they're getting trillions of interactions, you know, per day going through their systems, and the exhaust that those interactions create can be codified, mined, and put in and used as training sets for, um, you know, artificial intelligence systems that, that you know, no startups gonna gonna be able to get to. I will say the government, um, in most countries uh, or most geos, they're really doing everything they can to get data just out there. I mean, the U.S. government, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say they're ahead of the pack, but they're 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 pretty close along. I mean, you know, just the simple things like weather data, right? You, know, you go to Europe and uh, you know try and get access to to weather data. I mean, it's hard in the U.S. That data is all available. You know that that it's all there. And anybody that wants to have access and use it is, is free to do so. You know, the government just provides it. So, you know, I think that as you start to see more and more regulation coming into tech because these big companies are starting to exert a lot of influence because they can, because they're that big or because they have that much data or they have those many users, um, it in and of itself starts to stifle competition. And I think there's a growing consensus that there are ways to manage that without breaking those companies up. And one of them is that they're going to have to start licensing the data that they have and they have to start licensing it in a pretty, uh, you know, reasonable way. In other words, they can't hold people hostage to pay for that data. They're going to be accountable for making sure the data is safe. In other words, you know, it's anonymized, so you don't have personal information and things like that in there, but there will be good data sets out there that people will be able to access. Um, and, I, and I think the U.S. is is actually trying to trying to do a fair amount of that, not just focus on privacy around data, but making data more accessible.
I think that's a really interesting point because I feel it's so often it's there's this big tech company that we have to split apart because it's so big. But I think there's this like gray area in between of, oh, they can license off the data. We don't have to rip, rip them apart. There's other yeah. ways of making them not so dominant. Well, and, and I think too, if uh, you know, you look a, a lot of the dominances, um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, how would you break up Facebook? You know, it's it's like it's it's Instagram, and and, and it, it goes one place, and you know, the Facebook. I mean, it, you know, you're really not solving, you know, much of a problem there. But you can say, okay, you know, if if you're going to be able to operate in this way, where you can clearly determine. Um, you know, what information people get, then there's a set of rules that you're going to need to abide by that both protects people's privacy, levels the playing field, and opens it up so competition can occur. And it may just be that, you know, competition is more part of the ecosystem as opposed to, you know, it's just a head-to-head -head thing where somebody says the only way to complete with, with Facebook is to create the next Instagram or something like that. And I don't, you know, I, I, I think that's the challenge now versus back in the old days when, you know, these companies that got to be massive, they became more conglomerates, right? They just kept building more and more products and, you know, things like that. But there may be other ways like, you know, Amazon, which is, is obviously one of the bigger ones that are out there and, you know, the amount of information and data that they have on people and their applicability of, of um, uh, technology is, 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 is pretty it's, it's a little scary and, and yeah. awe-inspiring at the same time, but you, you know, I mean, they've done things that I think people look at that and say, you know, that, that probably wasn't too cool. Like personalized pricing, um, you know, the fact I that, no idea. well, okay. well, here's what personalized pricing can be is um, they look at my purchase of music and they see that I buy, you know, say one or two songs, well, I guess it's pre-Spotify, but one or two songs a month. They look at you and they realize you're buying five songs a day. So one would think, hey, that's a good customer. Let's reward them with a lower price. But in reality, I'm spending my money a lot of different other places. You want to spend all your money on music. So if they increase the price slightly for you, will you keep buying music because yeah. you're such a music lover, right? You will. So, and because it's all real time, it's all automated, they can say, okay, instead of 99 cents a song, let's do it at like a dollar one. And let's see if he still buys. He did, let's go to a dollar three. And they could do that down to an individual level. There's micro-targeting that, you know, Facebook can do with advertising, uh, Amazon could do with pricing. I mean, those are the kinds of things where I think the government's gonna step in and say, okay, hang on, um, you know, that's just not above board kind of a thing. Um, you know, so I think interesting I, because yeah. usually a company has to like price their product based off of the whole market. Right. But you can do it individually. Because you are a market, right? You buy all sorts of different things. You are a market. And if they know enough about you, they can price, uh, you know, they can figure out the elasticity of your buying habits and what price you're going to pay. And when you do a ton of shopping through the same place and all that data gets accumulated, they can start building profiles, psychological profiles of you that they really understand what kind of buyer you are. And that's where all this machine learning, all this data and how they can apply it in a personalized way. That's not good for you. Yeah. I'm not saying they're going to do that. Or in fact, they did it and got caught and, you know, they said, Oh, you know, it was an experiment and all that, but give me yeah. a break. All right. They're, they're a business. They want to make more money that they're, they're going to, 
any, any idea that says, hey, this will make us more money, they're going to look at it. All right. I think we're going to leave it at that. All righty, Pat. Yeah. Thank you very much. All righty. Take care and stay warm. You too. All right. Bye.